This episode of Papaganda is sponsored by Blue Buddha Boutique. Join the handmade revolution. Blue Buddha Boutique is the leading innovator in original chainmail designs, tutorials, and projects. Blue Buddha Boutique is an independent, woman-owned boutique based in Chicago, Illinois, that helps people all over the world create beautiful works of art. Check them out online at bluebuddhaboutique.com. Happy weaving. This is Papaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Hi, this is Sarah Merck, and I'm on the set of a film that's being shot in Southeast Portland, right on the banks of the Willamette River. Action! You! Come with me! I didn't cut that wood! A small crew of people are gathered around as director Don Jones Redstone tries to get the perfect shot of a construction worker being chewed out by her boss. It's a simple scene. It's just two actors and a couple lines. But on a film shoot, nothing is simple. Right next to me, sound recordist Marjorie De Ocampo is wearing big headphones and wielding a huge fuzzy microphone. She has to try and catch the actor's dialogue while contending with a train that's running on the tracks to our right and gravel barges barreling through the river on our left. Meanwhile, director of photography Kia Ann Gareths is carrying a heavy camera on her chest, supported by a huge harness that goes over her shoulders. Yeah, this is a great shot. So we're doing an over-the-shoulder, um, really shallow focus. We're going from one person to another. So. Everything's all nice and pretty, diffused because there's clouds, and that's what we were hoping for. This film is called Sista in the Brotherhood. It's a short film about a young black woman who struggles to prove herself in the male-dominated field of construction work. That plot may hit especially hard for the all-female crew of this movie because the film industry, too, is male-dominated. Recent studies show that for every woman working in the film industry, there are five men. Ready? All right, places. Quiet on the set. Roll sound. Roll cameras. Scene, 14A, take two. Action. She f***ed up the whole pile, Red. That's not true. shut up. That's not true. I didn't cut that wood. Come with me. The gender inequality in film and TV has been a huge conversation recently. I am sure you have heard the statistics about women in Hollywood. You can pick any of the statistics. They are all depressing, whether you're talking about women on camera or behind the camera. You know, women have only 30% of speaking parts in the top 250 grossing films in the U.S., or female actresses are routinely paid less than their male co-stars, or women of color direct only 2% of TV episodes. The thing about these statistics is not just that they're bad, but that they haven't gotten any better. The number of women working on major Hollywood films has not budged in nearly 20 years. Usually, the discussion around women working in Hollywood goes something like this. Why aren't there more women in Hollywood? Why aren't there more female directors? We need to encourage women to get into film. Of course, we should encourage women to get into film and TV. But actually, there is not a lack of women in the world who want to make film and TV. There is a lack of women in the world who are being hired by studios and production companies to make those big-budget film and TV shows. Destry Martino is a writer and director in Hollywood. Last week, she launched a website, The Director List. The site highlights the work of female directors from around the world and also hosts a searchable database of over 850 female directors. 
what the database makes clear is that while there are literally hundreds and hundreds of female directors wanting to work, it's very rare for women to even make it onto the lists of potential directors that studios would consider for a project. We saw this, for example, with the 2014 film Selma. You will not tolerate agitators attempting to orchestrate a disturbance in this state. It is unacceptable that they use their power to keep us voiceless. Selma was one of only three major studio-released films last year that was directed by a woman. But the studio behind the film reportedly went through five male directors for the project. Stephen Frears, Paul Haggis, Michael Mann, Spike Lee, and Lee Daniels. Before the film's star, David Oyelowo, argued strongly to offer the gig to Ava DuVernay. Ava DuVernay went on to be nominated for Best Director at the Oscars for her work on Selma. Just two years before, she'd won the Best Director Award at Sundance for her feature film Middle of Nowhere. So when the studio was looking around for a director to work on Selma, why wasn't she on the list to begin with? That's part of why Destry Martino made her website The Director's List, to literally put women on lists of potential directors. For her master's thesis, Destry Martino researched the question of why film studios don't hire more women, when there's lots of qualified women out there. It's more complex than I can just say in you know a simple sentence, but there, of course, is institutionalized sexism and cultural barriers that keep women out. There is uh, the, the idea that um, women only direct a certain type of genre, you know, th- so that would exclude them from a lot of studio films. There's the impression that women don't direct action or there are women that don't have experience, there aren't any women that have experience with action, which is also wrong. You can search on action on the, in the director list database now and find people who have the experience. And then I also talk to people all the time who have the interest in it. It's just um, a lot of mythology, I think, keeps women out on, you know, just beliefs that are incorrect. So let's get this straight. There are thousands of women working in film, but they appear to be systematically not hired for jobs by film studios and production companies. And we have data that shows that this problem has persisted for at least 20 years. That is not a quirk of a Hollywood boys club. That's discrimination. Likely, gender and race-based discrimination that's against the law. That's why in May, the American Civil Liberties Union decided to step in to Hollywood. Hi, my name is Melissa Goodman, and I'm the director of the LGBTQ Gender and Reproductive Justice Project at the ACLU of Southern California. Despite film companies and Hollywood stars coming out to say that sexism is bad and we should support women in film, not a lot has changed in the industry in recent years. That's why, Melissa says, it's time for a formal investigation of how discrimination occurs in the film industry and how we can end it. We decided that the time was now to change the conversation a bit and try something new because it seems like um, this is not a new problem. This is, in fact, quite an old problem and a problem that has existed very openly for decades. Um, The state and federal civil rights agencies have a great deal of of resources and experience tackling um, industries that have hard systemic bias issues, and they know how to do it. Um, And frankly, we're hoping that that they take a look and really, um, you know, either look at some of the worst employers or sort of look systemically at everyone and, and, you know, pull people in and, and try to come up with some new, new solutions. Because what, what's, what's needed, um, I think, at this point is, is external oversight. You know, year after year, um, it's well known 
within the industry and without that these gender disparities occur. And though there's been internal industry efforts uh, to address the problem, the problem has not gotten better. The numbers have not changed. The, you know, if anything, some of them have changed for the worse. So that, that means that internal actions are not working and something else is needed. The takeaway here is that women are working on lots of films. They're just not likely to be the big budget films you might see in theaters across the country. The word indie gets thrown around a lot in pop culture, but in film, it actually means something. A film project that's created without support from a major studio or distributor. In part because of rampant sexism in the studio industry, women are much more likely to make indie films than big budget ones. For example, remember the film Sista in the Brotherhood, whose Riverside set I visited? Quiet on the set, roll sound, roll cameras. That film isn't financed through any kind of Hollywood studio. The people behind the project fundraised thousands of dollars themselves to begin production on Kickstarter and got a local arts grant, too. Researcher and filmmaker Destry Martino explains that indie films made by women often tell stories that are different than what you'd see out of major studios. You know, a lot of times when women uh, create stories, it's from their experience, and you see a more authentic female experience on film. And if that's not getting into the larger stories that are seen by um, you know, the, the, the audience that studio films get to, then we're, having, we're getting a very skewed version of the female experience. And, and that's really obvious when you look at a uh, lot of the studio films that come out where women are more sexualized, there are fewer uh, significant female characters. You know, uh, there's a lot changes when you start looking at the studio films compared to independent films. The message I hear is this. There are many, many capable and creative women working in film but it's still so rare to see a major film set where there's more than a handful of women. Major studios and distributors need to recognize what we already know. Women are great at making films. Y'all just need to get on board and hire them to make movies. I was taking every hair from you Drive by shooting son of a bitch and I'm done You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about women working in film and TV. Sometimes women who work in the film industry have to hear some ridiculous stuff from their co-workers. Some frustrated industry individuals set up an anonymous blog to catalog some of the stuff they've heard. They called this blog, Shit People Say to Women Directors. Women who work in the film and TV industry in any capacity, whether as directors or writers or animators or camera operators, submit stories to the blog of real things people have said to them. A few weeks ago, A-list director Elizabeth Banks read a couple excerpts from the blog. Um, this is kind of cute. You can't get in this van, honey. I'm waiting for the director. I am the director. <laughs> I think it is, um, I mean, everyone on my set knew I was the director, so I didn't deal with a lot of this. Um, uh, she's good, but I, can, I only want to hire someone I can have beers with at the end of the day. Let me just tell you, I'm Irish and I drink whiskey. We got people in the bitch office to read other real-life anonymous stories from the site. 
Here is the best of shit people say to women directors. I'm a Directors Guild Award director with primetime network TV credits. I've been told, we already hired an African-American, so we're totally covered for diversity this season. Sorry! And we had a female director last season, and it didn't work out. So we aren't hiring any women this year, maybe next year. And the show has a lot of special effects, and we just can't find any women who have the experience to pull it off. I'm an animator. I was sitting with a male creative director and some other women we work with, and he says loudly to all of them about me, this is the only woman I know who can, should work in 3D animation. Then he looked at me smiling as though I take it as a compliment that he had approved of me. I was working on a comedy. I sat and listened to our executive producer rank the actresses on the show in terms of fuckability. One of the staff writers called him out on it, to which he replied, Writer's room, safe space to brainstorm. The show we were working on was for Disney Channel. The actresses were all underage. I'm a colorist. An engineer said to me, upon hearing I still use my maiden name, you're not one of those, are you? I am directing, producing a feature film. I've had some upsetting experiences. Editor number one was a veteran film editor and a very talented man, but would not take one note I gave him on my film, which resulted in editor number two, who, when I confronted him for unprofessional behavior, sent me a slew of disrespectful emails. When I told my producers I wanted to fire him, all three men sat down to talk about his behavior. They told him he had to treat me with respect. It worked. I guess it had to come from a man. I am an aspiring female director currently working towards a degree in film. In one of my English classes, we were assigned a position paper covering a societal issue we felt deserved more attention. For my topic, I wrote about gender inequality in the film industry. In his written feedback, my professor explained that even though my argument was excellent, he said, you should have picked a more important issue. Young producer here. I recently met with a writer-director to decide whether or not to take on his feature. In my collaboration agreement, I stipulated with him that men and women needed to be portrayed equally in the film. He told me he didn't want to work together unless I took that out. I dropped the project, even though it would have supported me for a couple of months because it already had the funding. We have to keep on fighting, no matter how hard it is. listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about women working in film and TV. One of the big things we've been talking about is that women are much more likely to make indie films than big budget ones that are supported and paid for by Hollywood studios. A perfect example of this kind of bold, interesting indie filmmaker is Christina Cho. Christina is a filmmaker who grew up in a small town in New Jersey, where she was the only Korean-American kid in town. She's always felt like an outsider. And that point of view has informed the films she's made. 
In 2011, she made a short film called I Am John Wayne about a young black man who loves horses and is struggling with the death of his best friend. It's a quiet, meditative, gorgeous film. Christina describes it as an existential Western. And it has unforgettable scenes of this young guy riding on horseback through the streets of his city. How you holding up? I'm all right. He acts all cold now when June grooms him. For real? Yeah, I think he misses Jerry. Can I ride him? A bunch of people left already. You're going to be late. I ain't going. The film went on to win the Grand Jury Prize for Best Narrative Short Film at the 2012 Slam Dance Film Festival. Although she's had some critical success, for her next project, Christina is going the indie route for making a film. She's currently raising much of the budget for a feature film on Kickstarter. The movie is called Nancy. It's a psychological drama about a woman who lives at home with her mom. She's so desperate for connection that she creates elaborate lies to get sympathy and support from people. It's rare to see stories about female anti-heroes on screen. And the idea for Nancy comes from Christina Cho's interest in stories of imposters, including someone who deeply impacted her own life. A few years ago, it turned out that one of Christina's writing professors had been lying to everyone about his work. As she explains in her Kickstarter video, that started Christina on the path to making Nancy. So when it came out that his entire career was a lie, I was totally shocked. Who was this person? You know, what part of him was real? Was he or wasn't he still the most brilliant teacher that I've ever had? These are the kind of questions that I really wanted to explore with this film. So what is it like working as an indie film creator on your first feature film? Writer Devin Manibo, who's volunteering as a film intern on Nancy, talked to Christina Cho about the film and how feeling like an outsider has influenced her work. So you talked a little bit about um, your experiences as an outsider in your Kickstarter campaign video um, and the way that that impacts the work you make. Do you want to mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, it's kind of funny because I didn't really realize that's what I was doing until I'd made a bunch of short films. Um, and it, when I was trying to tie it together, I was like, oh, I realized what do these things have in common? They're all these characters that are living on the outside, feeling on the outside of society. And I think growing up as Korean-American in this small town where I was literally the only Asian person I ever saw, you know, and subconsciously just that um, psyche of feeling on the outside and, you know, relating to people that have gone through that, you know. And it's a very broad thing, but it's also very specific. Like, Mm -hmm. I think when you come from privilege and you're kind of whatever, you're, you're the status quo, you don't even know what mm-hmm. that's like, you know? Yeah, totally. So I think it's just like, I can't even help tell these outsider stories. It's not like I'm consciously thinking about. It just happens. Yeah, it just yeah. happens. I'm like, I don't know. I, I guess that's what I'm drawn to, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I'll feel like I'm really, you know, made it or whatever you want to call it if I get to just tell whatever stories I want to tell mm-hmm. and I'm not sort of put in this box of like, oh, you're Asian American filmmaker, you should take, you should tell Asian stories or you're a female filmmaker and you mm-hmm. should tell only female stories right. because I feel like that's, that sort of identity based 
expectation right. is, is pigeonholing you. Yeah, and yeah. it's kind of like old school. Yeah. Like I feel like it's super nineties <laughs> to be like, you must make this kind of film. Yeah. You know, and I think if we're really gonna progress, it's like, yeah, I can make a sci fi movie. I can make whatever I want, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. That's what's cool about what's happening now. It's like there is so many possibilities. You know, um, what sort of hurdles have you faced in terms of receiving support oh. for your project? Whether that's monetary right. support or social support or yeah, you know, independent film in America, <laughs> especially when you have you know female antihero kind of character who's mm-hmm. like morally ambiguous. You know, that's not considered a commercial thing you know Mm -hmm. and it's really frustrating because you know I feel like maybe if this film was starring Matt Damon (laughs) (laughs) as an imposter you know what I mean like would that would things be a lot easier of Mm -hmm. course but I don't want to blame everything on that I think that you know we're just sort of the fact is it's very hard to make independent film in this country um there's not really any like government support. Mm-hmm. It's very much like who you can get to like give you money, totally. you know. And we've had a we've been really lucky to have a lot of support from film institutions like you know Film Independent and IFP and Venice Biennale and a lot of great places, you know. Um, so that's been really great, you know. I think at the end of the day, like what what makes change? It's like you just need to tell these different stories, but of course you need the money to mm-hmm. tell these different stories and to bring these like complex female characters to the screen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not like there's a shortage of people wanting to tell them. <laughs> and I think to see them, it's yeah. just like, as soon as things get made, then people will realize that there's an audience for it. Right. Like how have you right. experienced feeling overlooked, being <sighs> overlooked? The reality is that you don't know. You don't know if you're getting turned down for a job. You don't know if somebody's not recommending you. You don't know if someone's not giving you money because of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just sort of like the proof is in the pudding. Like, you just look at the statistics and, like, for, you know, the people that are making decisions about this are not, the gatekeepers are are really not allowing more women to tell their stories. So Mm -hmm. I don't, you know... It's funny because I did a HBO directing fellowship a couple years ago, which was amazing. And I was shadowing on a bunch of shows like Girls and Boardwalk Empire and Looking. And um, I probably saw... So there was one one time when I was on set of of Looking and I saw um, a female director, a female DP. And I just like kind of teared up which is so silly yeah but it was literally so rare it was like I was like it's like seeing your unicorn <laughs> you know I've never seen that yeah that's crazy mm-hmm. that's just crazy <laughs> you know like are you kidding what is this 1950 <laughs> so I just think you know once then you know it, it's really just like how do we get those percentages to change how do we get more stories being told? And I think ultimately, you know, we need financing mm-hmm. to make the stories. Mm-hmm. And 
we'll make them, you know, and that's it. Yeah. No one's going to just like roll the red carpet down for you and open these doors for you. You kind of have to just like barrel through it. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. <laughs> with a smile. Yeah. <laughs> Never without a smile. And you have to like lean on people sometimes. You have mm-hmm. to be like, okay, they need your help, you know, and like build a little village or community of people that believe in you and that want to, you know, help each other. Mm-hmm. Kumbaya! <laughs> you better get up for your mama. You better grab the best of your life. That was writer and film intern Devin Manibo talking to director Christina Cho about the In the Works feature film Nancy. You can watch the film's trailer and donate to the project. The rewards include awesome tote bags emblazoned with the names of female directors at kickstarter.com. Just type in Nancy and you'll see the film. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. On today's show, we're talking about gender dynamics that shape our film and TV industries. We've talked about indie filmmakers, women who are working really hard to create their own films outside of the male-dominated Hollywood system. But what is it like to actually work within that system? What is it like for the women who don't go the indie route and instead wind up working inside that boys' club? A good person to talk to about this is Alex Borstein. She's an actress, comedy writer, and producer with a long career in Hollywood. She's worked on all sides of the camera, as a writer for Mad TV, a producer for Showtime's Shameless, and currently as the nurse Dawn on HBO's show Getting On, a really interesting comedy about the people who work in a rather rundown hospital. But Alex Borstein is maybe best known for her work as the voice of Lois Griffin, the mom on animated show Family Guy, a show that we've written about many times at Bitch for its offensive jokes and what I would call demeaning humor. I called up Alex to talk about these contrasts in her work and what it's like for somebody who identifies as a feminist to be working within the world of raucous, mostly male TV comedy. Okay, so Alex, you've had a long and varied career in Hollywood doing voice acting and on-screen roles and everything from Mad TV to the Cartoon Network show Robot Robot Chicken. Um, One of your first roles, though, I read was writing uh, for the WB show Pinky and the Brain and then also the Power Rangers. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Power Rangers was like the very first thing I did. I mean, there was one commercial I did prior to that, but I didn't make the actual cut. They shot like a bunch of us for this Bank of America commercial. And then when it aired, you just saw my shoulder. So (laughs) the very first thing I ever did that was kind of successful was um, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And it was like a voice playing the evil Queen Machina. And I got it by meeting a guy who does... He cast the voice Walla, which is like background voices for Power Rangers, and he was also a performer himself, and we met at the Jewish Community Center doing a play. (laughs) I think both an audition room and a Hollywood writer's room would be such an intimidating place to be. So I'm wondering, how do you feel differently about being in those like creative but often very critical places now after so many years compared to when you were just getting your footing 10 or 15 years ago? It's still terrifying, but (laughs) but in the best way. You know, I just went to Disneyland yesterday with my kids and 
my son, it was the first time he could go on Indiana Jones. And I love Disneyland. I'm obsessed with it. And we'd been talking it up and so excited. And he went on it and he was terrified. And he felt really awful about being scared afterwards. And I said, no, 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 no. Like, fear is like the best part of life. Fear is what keeps you alive. Fear is what makes sure you you don't die on a daily basis because you're not going to do things that are way too fearful. But it's exciting enough to keep life fresh and that's kind of how I feel. I think that's what I'm addicted to about this business is being in a writer's room and having the bar raised and being surrounded by really smart people and constantly wanting to make sure you're on top of your game and then going to an audition and and you're on and that's it and it's do or die. And there's just something, it's like tightrope walking without actually feeling like you could lose your life. <laughs> Does Is it the same kind of fear now as it was when you were first getting started or do you feel like your what what you're afraid of or the way that you feel that has changed? In some ways, you're more confident. It's kind of like your sex life too as you get older, I think, as a woman. Like <laughs> in so many ways, you're so much more confident. Uh, you know what you do, you kind of know what you do best, and here's what I have to offer, and either they're gonna like it or not. So you're you're no longer fearful of am I right and am I going to be rejected? But then there's this a different fear that sets in as, do I still have it? Can I still do it? Are people going to compare this to past work? And now I have something to be compared to. So it's different fear. Um, but I kind of like it. It's, I think it's fun. I, a lot of people don't, after they work for a while, they refuse to read for parts or they don't want to have to audition. They they feel like they should just be offered things. And I don't mind auditioning at all. I get it. So I was hoping you could tell me about sort of what it's like to be in the role where you're deciding the shape of the show rather than just hoping you could land a role on it. I'll tell you, doing both helps. They each help the other. And it's eye-opening. Like, you know, when I, back in 2002, I was doing my own pilot and auditioning people for that. And that just kind of blew my mind open about really how the process works. And then Shameless even more so. Shameless really solidified, you know, writing an episode and then being in the room casting other people for the parts you've written really proved to me that it has, it's nothing to do with you going in that room and being rejected. The second you walk in, you kind of know if the person's right or not for that role. Uh, There's so many people that would come in and you just knew, oh, no, 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 this is not a fit at all. But wow, they're super interesting for this other thing. And you keep them in mind and you really want everyone to succeed. Like that's what I wasn't aware of, that you you want the next person that walks in the room to be perfect so that your search is over and you've, you're fulfilled as a, as a writer and as a you know producer on it. So it was really eye-opening. I've always imagined the life of an actor to be filled with constant rejection. You know, like if you are doing it right, maybe you're going out and auditioning for lots of parts and you know, 90% of people are telling you no. So it's funny to hear that actually being on the other side of that made you feel better about the roles that you don't get. It's just a question of something fitting right. You know, it's like trying on jeans, really. Um, There's lots of that you can get on and that will cover your ass, but there's very few that fit just right. And um, But it is, there is a lot of rejection. There's definitely, there's times that you just feel... You feel like everyone else knows something you don't know. You feel like you're old and washed up. You feel like you're irrelevant. Um, and then in one day, that can all change by booking something. 
for women, the second you walk into a room, the way that you look immediately is, is probably, you know, 60% of whether you have a shot at this part or not. Um, whereas I think for men, it's a little more, oh, if the part calls for a guy who's supposed to be a love interest for a main character and he's supposed to be sexy and a guy walks in, if you don't immediately find him sexy, there's room for him to be charming, be interesting and have the room afterwards say, oh yeah, he, he was kind of an interesting sexy. Um, whereas if a woman comes in and is supposed to be playing a sexy part, it's the second she walks in the room, many people are going to decide whether that is sexy or not, and she can't win it back. At least that's been the experience I've seen in the room. Um, so that's there's, there's a huge difference, I think, in terms of how you look on the outside auditioning, gender-wise. You you have to you have to fit a mold um, physically, you know, in uh, many more times than men do. Well, that's one thing I like about the the role you play these days. You play the nurse Dawn on the HBO show Getting On. In the show, it's like a really funny, dark show about nurses and doctors at this down at its healed hospital. It's it's more realistic than other. There's I I can't believe that like hospital shows are an entire genre, but there is like a genre of oh, hospital yeah. shows. And I think get I I like Getting On because both because it's not glamorous at all, the jobs that you're doing, and then also just the people on the show, like, I think look more like nurses and doctors actually look, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's no McDreamies on our show. Yeah. And, um, you know, even Laurie Metcalf's character, uh, you know, sidles up to her character, Je Dr. Jenna James, Paul, one of the other doctors on the floor, she's she's obsessed with and, and and wants to win his favor and finds him handsome. But he's also like a very realistic doctor handsome. Like, you know, it's not like a, a supermodel wearing a lab coat. Um, and I love that, too. I love that everything is so real and there's real faces. And, you know, our patients are elderly women, which are, are not allowed on television. Like, you know, Lori and Nisi and I are at certain ages that there's, there's not that much room to play interesting characters. And I, I mean, every day I kind of wake up that I'm working on that and I can't believe, I wonder if it's a dream because it really is unheard of to have such a rich characters. We're not searching for love. I mean, obviously Dawn is always stumbling for a relationship, but that's not what it's about. It's not a show about finding Mr. Right. It's just real people who are, three-dimensional characters they're not just wet blanket moms or nags or um it's just so invigorating to get to play her so many of the roles you've done before this are like sort of over the top or fantastical things that you wouldn't see in real life mm -hmm. um how's it feel to be playing somebody that you're like oh this is like somebody who could be a real person out there in the world does that do you feel a different burden or a different um responsibility there i do i do on many levels with this show this it's it's like the most amazing experience I've had as an actress. It's on all levels. The writing is so good. Um, the the group is so tight knit. We have very little time. We have so much dialogue. You know, our last season we shot an episode in three days, which is unheard of, and very little turnaround time. So the burden of the pressure of wanting it to be great and live up to the writing and learn the lines is one huge burden. So there's constant fear that I would live in on the set, um, which was also really exhilarating. And then also she's so three dimensional and she's so real 
And the opportunity to do that, I don't want to blow it personally to kind of do a disservice to that whole world of nurses and, and care. And also, I don't want to blow my opportunity as an actress. You know, I really want to do it right and, and uh, you know, kind of show, show the world or whatever. Like, I can do lots of different things. I'm not just a sketch person or a voiceover person or, or a writer. I, have, I can do all these different colors, which has been, God, it's been so much fun. But, yeah, there, there is definitely a burden to, to get it right. You know, we have someone on the set who is our medical advisor that we want to make sure we're doing things right. Would this, would I really be doing this IV? Would I be doing this? Would I, does this make any sense? And they're very quick to tell us if something, they call bullshit if something looks fake or is not right. Um, yeah. So a lot of the work you've done before this has been voiceover work. And of course your longest running role is on family guy as the voice of the mom and the family, Lois. Um, and I mean, I have, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. I often uh, find the humor on Family Guy offensive. I'm not yeah. a big fan of the show. Yeah. And the show has often been criticized for jokes that are sexist and trans yeah. and transphobic. And I wanted to ask you basically, like, what do you see as your role on that show as somebody who cares, obviously, about sexism in society and, and identifies as a feminist? What, 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 what's your role there on that show? And, and what, why does the humor often lean on um, sort of issues that I find problematic? You know, I've both written for the show and I perform on the show. And I have been in the writer's room when a lot of the most sexist things have been pitched. And it's hard. I'm in a very weird position because I love a lot of those jokes. I love a lot of that humor. I, you know, am a child of a Holocaust survivor. And I think some of those jokes are the funniest there are. And the Jew jokes and the anti-Semitic stuff and fat jokes. You know, I've always been a big girl. And it's really interesting that I do have these two sides. I love that getting on has women on there that aren't allowed to be on screen anywhere else. And it's pushing the boundaries for women and gender roles. And I also love Family Guy and Ted and A Million Ways to Die in the West. So that's one of the things I really like about, you know, bitch media and bitch magazine was the idea of how you can find a way to live in this world with all of these things going on around you and still maintain what you, what I believe is my core feminism um, and beliefs and, and what I'm willing to take and what I think is funny and what I don't think is funny. So to me, that's kind of part of the battle and part of the game of being a woman or, or anyone and living in this world and trying to make it work for you. Um, it's hard. It's, it, it's really hard for me because I feel like nothing should be off limits. Nothing should never not be allowed to be said, there's, but there can always be consequences for whatever is said. So it's tricky. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, yeah, I think that's the as the argument that a lot of comedians make that that they're like, I should be able to say whatever I want, and the response to that is always like, Yeah, you can, but we're also allowed to say whatever we want in criticism of that or in Absolutely. response to it. And Absolutely. that's something that's changed so much, I think, in our media culture is that now if there is what whenever there is um, a sexist joke or a racist joke on TV the the TV writers are going to hear about it because people are going to be talking about it on Twitter. They're going to be, you know, posting about it on their social media. And that's such a big change from what it was 10 years ago. And so I was wondering sort of what your experience is with that when you hear, do you hear a lot of pushback on Family Guy? And like, what do you do with that criticism? 
I do. You know, I wrote for the show for a long time and then I didn't. You know, I had had my kids and I took a break from being in the room for a long time. I'm actually going to go back this next season, I think. I'm going to consult. And I love being in the room because I love the opportunity to weigh in on stuff. I also, you know, keep trying every season to pitch things to get on the air. You know, I'm trying to do an animated show that has a lead female character. It's been very, very hard to get something like that off the ground. And um, but I want the same freedoms once I get there to be able to slam everybody that I can slam. Um, but would love to slam the patriarchy, you know, and, and play with a lot of that. Yeah, I know this is like, a, this is kind of a, a tricky question, but I'm wondering like, so when you're in a writer's room and you're reading through the script and you come across a joke that you're like, this is just like, it's not a funny joke. It's punching down. It's sexist. It goes against my politics and my opinions. Like, how do you respond to that? As somebody who's a really funny person yourself, like, how do you proactively respond to that as a writer and as somebody who's involved with the show? Do you, do you say, I don't think we should use this joke? Do you say, like, I don't think this joke is funny because of such and such? Or do you, like, just let it slide and be like, well, that's not my job? Well... You know, I'm so calloused and my opinion is so, I think from years of, of doing stand-up and being in writer's rooms, my my skin is very thick. So sometimes I'm not as offended by something as someone else is. But what what I do have is a very strong sense of what I call tonnage issue, which we say in the room. So if there's an episode that has Jew joke after Jew joke after Jew joke and they're old and they're tired and we've seen it and it's cliche, that to me is offensive. I'm like, it's not funny. That's not funny. It's not a new or fresh way to say that. You know, if we're slamming the same celebrity, it's the same target everyone slammed, and there's nothing fresh or new about it, that's when I say like, eh, cut that. It's not worth, that's just lazy. It's not funny. If there's something that happens to be sexist in a way, or if, if it's, uh, a prostitute joke or making fun of a, a stupid woman or something, let's say, if there's some fresh twist on it or something that I find funny or see, see the twist in it that I get what we're making fun of and who we're making fun of. For instance, if it's a character in the show, like Brian is the dog who has a tendency to like vapid women. If what we're making fun of in the long run are men that like these vapid women I love those kind of jokes. I love it. I love being able to slam that. So, so I don't know if that answers your question. But to me, if it's if it's a tonnage issue, if it's over and over and it's the same thing, and there's more than one in the script, and it doesn't, there's it's not an intelligent or is interesting way to make that joke. That's when I'll weigh in, and that sometimes it doesn't mean shit. If I weigh in and say that's not funny, they might say too bad. We like it. Um, but that's usually when I pipe up, when I just think it's... Or if, if it gets a groan. There are so many things that our table reads that are disgusting. <laughs> there are things in the room that are so vile that we... Areas we would play with and attempt and see as their comedy in this. And you know immediately at our table reads if, if they get a groan, if there's no laughs, if it's dead silence, you kind of know what works and what doesn't work comedically. Mm -hmm. um, and after something airs, you know, Twitter... That's where we find out if, if, if it wasn't, if people didn't find it funny then. One of the things that I love about, like, the character of Lois and why I love playing Lois is 
The show may have sexist jokes. The show may punch down. We also are kind of an equal opportunity offender, which I love. But I also love that I've been able to play a sitcom mother who likes sex, who has a dark underbelly, who can be vicious, can be friendly, can be loving, can be sexy, can be a lot of those things on her terms. And that's fucking rare. That's really unheard of. And... You know, a lot of times you are just the voice of reason, you are just the moral compass, and you are left to kind of be the wet blanket in a way. As a sitcom mom or as a, as a mom role? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so to me it's kind of like you got to take the good with the bad. If you want an opportunity to, to show some other colors for some other characters, you got to play in that sandbox and you may you may occasionally get whacked in the head by a metal shovel but i want to be in the sandbox playing That was Alex Borstein talking about her career in Hollywood. You can watch her as Dawn in the HBO show Getting On. discussing sexism in the film and TV industry for years, and I'm sure we'll keep talking about it for another decade. These depressing statistics about the lack of women being hired will not change overnight. The sexism we see on screen and behind the camera has deep roots and many causes. Attacking sexism in Hollywood can feel like playing a game of whack-a-mole. But one thing to keep in mind is that there are women, thousands of them, working in film and on TV. Supporting their work sometimes means seeking them out, since the major studios are not dropping their movies into our neighborhood cineplexes. To help make better film and TV, one way to start is to look beyond the Hollywood lights, to find the women making excellent media on their own terms. Who knows, your next favorite movie might be just beyond the spotlight. The songs on today's show are by Canadian singer-songwriter Frazy Ford. Look up her amazing new video for her song, Done. Really, go Google Frazy Ford Done, you will not regret it. Also thanks to Devin Manibo and Christina Cho for their work on today's show and the crew of Sista in the Brotherhood. I'm very much looking forward to watching the final cut of their film. Also thanks to Alex Borstein for making time to talk with me and to the bitch staffers, Patricia, Amanda, Amy, Kate, Kristen, Shirsten, and Katya who read excerpts of Shit People Say to Women Directors. This episode of Popaganda is sponsored by Blue Buddha Boutique. Join the handmade revolution. Blue Buddha Boutique is the leading innovator in original chainmail designs, tutorials, and projects. Blue Buddha Boutique is an independent, woman-owned boutique based in Chicago, Illinois, that helps people all over the world create beautiful works of art. Check them out online at bluebuddhaboutique.com. Happy weaving. 
Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 